This is Echozoi Radio, episode 158 for June 2021 with Mike Jenrin, The Gospel to Catholics. Welcome to Echo Zoe Radio, the podcast outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries, where you'll hear about important topics affecting the church today. Our primary goal is to explore a variety of issues while remaining faithful to God and His Word. Stay with us for the next hour as your host, Andy Olson, shares his conversation with this month's guest. Here's your host, Andy Olson. I'm Andy Olson. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. This is episode 158 for June 2021 with Mike Gendron on Roman Catholicism and the Gospel. Mike has spent over 30 years in full-time ministry reaching out to Roman Catholics with the Gospel. He's a repeat guest, having first joined me nearly 11 years ago while in town for a conference. And he returns to talk to me about his ministry to Roman Catholics and the ever-present need for the Gospel in a troubled world. Show notes for this episode are available at echozoe.com slash 158. Before we get to the interview, I'd like to point you to the Christian podcast community. Echo Zoe Radio is just one of many fantastic podcasts you'll find at the Christian podcast community, with new shows joining us every month. I just looked at the show page, and there are currently 37 different shows. That's not episodes, that's shows. One thing I particularly enjoy is there's a community feed there, which puts all of those shows on a single feed, and it's a great way to discover what's new at the Christian podcast community. So you can find us all at christianpodcastcommunity.org. And with that, here's my discussion with Mike. Mike, uh, it is a blessing to have you back uh, almost 11 years after the first time we sat down and talked together. It's amazing how quickly time flies. The older we get, I think um, time is more exponential now instead of linear. And it sure seems like uh, time is just flying on by. I've noticed that as I transitioned about 20 years ago from adolescence into adulthood and, and now I'm a parent and married and whatnot, that it, every year goes by so much faster than the last year. I think we have very busy lives now. I know for a fact I am in seminary. They used to tell me, if you think you're busy now, where do you get out of seminary and have a ministry <laughs> yeah. nonstop? And they were right. Yeah. So you were just in town, too. Um, it was uh, kind of neat to have you up to Minneapolis. You came and spoke with us at church. and yeah, I really enjoyed it, Andy. It was so encouraging, such a blessing to not only myself, but also a blessing to my wife who runs our resource table. And just to get an opportunity to renew old friendships and to make new friends, it's just really a great way to do ministry. We really love people and we love to encourage them for the work of evangelism because I really believe that's the reason the Lord keeps us here after he saves us. You know, when he ascended yeah. into heaven, he finished his work to seek and to save the lost. And then he passed the baton to the church. He said, now you go and seek after those who will never seek after the true God and give them the gospel. So that's why we're here. And I really believe it's the primary purpose of the church is to reach out, have a holy huddle on Sunday and equip mm -hmm. the people to go out and 
evangelize and share the gospel. Well, it's nice to see as we get kind of past the worst of this uh, global virus that you're able to jump on a plane and, and travel once again and, and do that with churches. Yeah, it really is. Um, Zoom has come in handy over the last year and a half. We've done a lot of international Zooming, which is great. A couple of um, conferences I did in Lithuania, mm-hmm. which of course would have done been nearly impossible to uh, fly over there and do that kind of work because there's so few Christians over there. It's a country that's dominated by Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. That's the, my hope to be a lasting positive from what we just went through over the last year and a half is more teleconferencing and uh, Zoom. Uh, it, it really is practical in some cases. Very, very nice to have. I was going to mention, you know, that you were first on with me in October of 2010. You came down, you came up here for, uh, uh, Jan Markell has conferences and I used to be a follower of Jan's and was at the conference and we sat down in the back of one of the, the rooms at Grace Church. And I remember very distinctly that there was, there was kind of a, a turning point in this podcast as I was sitting across the table from you in that interview Back in those days, I used to record on a laptop, just put the sound mixer straight into the laptop and open up Audacity, which is a free audio editing tool and hit record. And you and I went through an hour of discussion and we got to the end and I hit stop. But before I could hit save, Audacity crashed and my heart sank. I thought I just took an hour of your time and it's lost. I managed to stitch it back together. It took me over four hours to just these little autosave files that we had and I found on the computer and I managed to rescue that episode, but uh, it sure changed me because I I learned what podcasters often learn the hard way, never record to a a laptop. So we're using digital now. We've been doing that for 10 years and. Mm-hmm. But very memorable and uh, well, the the episode was is always a joy. I, I've enjoyed every last one of the 157 episodes that I've done. But but then uh, also memorable for that. Um, before we get too started on on discussing um, the topic of the day, can we talk a little bit about your ministry and what what you do? And we talked about your travel, but uh, maybe a little bit of your testimony. Well, sure, Andy. Um, I was in the corporate world for 17 years, and in the providence of the corporation reorganized, and I was let go. And there I was with a huge mortgage and wondering what I'm going to do. And it was during that time that I believe it was the Lord leading me to seminary. Having been a devout Roman Catholic, I was fully indoctrinated with everything the Catholic Church had taught. And I went to a seminary primarily to purge myself of all the indoctrination and to fill my heart, my mind with truth, with biblical truth. And then I planned on going back into the corporate world, but the Lord had other plans. My last semester at seminary, I was introduced to a video that actually was a very clarion call to reach Roman Catholics with the gospel. They interviewed former priests and former nuns, and they had a desire to share the gospel with Catholics. And so as I watched the video, I brought it home and shared it with my wife, and we decided that for the next three months, we would invite every Roman Catholic we knew to our house 
every Tuesday night and we'd share this video and then we'd serve dessert and answer questions. Well, within three months, we saw 17 Roman Catholics exchange their religion for relationship wow. with Christ. Praise God. And so, yes, what do you do with 17 new babes in Christ? Well, mm -hmm. we invited them back over on Wednesday night to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. That's what the Great Commission is, is to make disciples, to teach mm -hmm. them everything Christ has commanded. And so it was during those Wednesday night sessions that many people began saying, can you write some of this down? so that we can share it with our loved ones and our family members. And the next thing you know, we're developing a newsletter and publishing gospel tracts. And so the ministry really took off. I was invited in to several churches. And one of the churches, I thought I was only preaching to 3,000 people. Little did I know that the pastor had a cassette ministry that went out all over the world. Oh, wow. And so now my message was going out all over the world, and we started getting emails and phone calls, more, wanting more information. And so it appeared there was really a great need to reach out to this huge mission field made up of 1.3 billion Roman Catholics. And so we never really set out to start a ministry, but the more we were sharing the gospel and the more we saw converts, the more we felt like this is what the Lord wanted us to do with our lives. And so Fast forward 30 years later, we've circled the globe twice now, been all over the globe and down to Australia and New Zealand and over the Far East to the Philippines and Myanmar, all over Europe, uh, Central America, up to Canada. So wherever there's a huge Catholic population, that's where we're called in to equip the body of Christ to reach out to the Roman Catholics who are lost and you know, something has happened in the last 10 years, and that is we've seen the evangelicals signing unity accords with the Roman Catholic religion. And so our primary purpose has now shifted. Initially, it was evangelistic, but now we also have to train evangelicals that the Catholic Church really is a mission field. Because when you sign unity accords with Catholics, it discourages evangelizing them because these unity accords are stating that they already share a common faith in the gospel. So we've been developing gospel tracts that teach evangelicals the differences mm -hmm. between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism to show them that there's definitely a need for evangelism because all you have to do is go back 500 years and you see the reformers that God raised up. They recognize the false and fatal gospel of Catholicism. Remember the five solas, that was a response to Roman Catholic evangelism mm -hmm. because the Catholic Church was teaching you're saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, scripture plus tradition, and glory was going to God and Mary and all the saints. And so the reformers said, no, this is not true. They were re reading the Bible and the Bible said we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. So it's puzzling why these evangelical leaders, such as Al Mohler and the president of Southern Seminary and Mark Bailey, who is the president of Dallas Seminary, they're signing these accords, and many evangelicals are looking to them as highly influential, knowledgeable people that must know that this is um, 
an accord that needs to be signed. So now 640,000 evangelicals have signed on because of their leaders having the influence over the body of Christ. So that's been a very important part of our ministry, which is why when I was up in Minneapolis this past weekend, my first message was a convergence of Islam and Catholicism. Mm -hmm. Show the body of Christ that Catholicism has more in common with Islam than it does with biblical Christianity. And I only wish these evangelical leaders could listen to some of these messages and take their name off these unity accords. Yeah. Uh, there, there was a lot there. I, I I don't like to interrupt. So I'm writing questions down to come back, let you finish your thoughts. Um, you, I, I was curious when you were given your, your backstory of your ministry and you decided after the corporate world to go back to, to go into seminary. Um, just curious how long you had been saved at that point. Only four years. Oh, wow. But during that four year period, I was like a dry sponge in the desert. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to absorb God's word. So before I go to work every morning, I was at a different Bible study every morning <laughs> of the week. I just couldn't get enough of God's mm -hmm. word. And so that really was is what led me up to go to seminary because I just wanted to get more and more of God's word in me. Awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then on, uh, in regard to these uh, like unity accords and stuff that, uh, you know, I wonder, it, it's it's definitely dangerous to have these things to 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 show unity cross uh, cross faith kind of thing and, and unity with unbelievers. Is there any case where it might be appropriate? I mean, when I'm thinking like as we get into like political issues, maybe or social issues or stuff, is there any is there any time when they might be? not so dangerous that people might understand that, well, we, we, for instance, we share a pro-life view with, with Catholicism. Yeah, that's a good question, Andy. And I'm glad you asked it because if these unity accords would have left out theology, mm -hmm. I would have signed it because mm -hmm. let's be co-belligerents with everybody we can to fight the social wars, to stand for pro-life and stand against abortion yeah, I would have signed it. But once you incorporate theology and statements yep. that share a common faith in the gospel, you know, that puts it off limits to an evangelical. Yeah, definitely. So that's the problem. But yes, that's a good question. Let's be co-belligerents together, but let's don't pray together. Let's don't pretend we're all yeah. brothers and sisters in Christ together. We're not. I think of not just Catholics, but say Mormons as well. That We can have a lot in common, but we don't want to cross over on the theology. Right. Sure. Um, you also mentioned you you talked you brought up the the Reformation and, and kind of talking about um, how 500 years ago they recognized the problems with Catholic theology. How much has that theology diverged in the time since the Reformation? Does has they have they continued to build on uh, on upon their heresy and their their poor doctrine? The Catholic Church, yes, yeah, over so. the last 500, say since the Reformation. Yeah, the Catholic Church has what are called infallible dogmas, and they're pronounced by infallible bishops when they speak with one voice. Mm -hmm. And so by nature of an infallible dogma, it can never change. And so it's like putting it in cement. It's there throughout the existence of the church. And so the Catholic Church continues to build on their infallible dogmas. Uh, the most recent ones have to do with Mary, 
1858, they pronounced that Mary was conceived without sin. It's called the um, Immaculate, Immaculate Conception. Conception. And so Catholics began asking, well, wait a minute, if sin is what causes death and the body to decay, and Mary was conceived without sin, and you said she lived a sinless life, then where's Mary? She must still be alive. Mm-hmm. So they had to come up with another infallible dogma in 1950, almost 100 years later, they declared that Mary was physically, bodily assumed into heaven. Mm-hmm. And that's why she's no longer here. Mm-hmm. So she never experienced death. And it's really amazing because the Lord ascended into heaven as the king. Mary was assumed into heaven as the queen. They just really um, steal the attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ and give them to Mary. She said to be co-mediatrix when mm-hmm. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. And so they really exalt Mary to a place of really the Godhead, even though they haven't gone that far. But they've given her many of the divine attributes that are given to Christ. Now, you mentioned the Immaculate Conception. Is that a doctrine that you find evangelicals misunderstand? That they they might think that that's talking about Jesus rather than Mary? Well, there may be some that do, but uh, boy, it's pretty clear. Yeah, there Mm -hmm. was Mary that they're talking about. That's why it was a pronouncement in 1858, not in the first century. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you about Francis. I don't follow Catholicism very much. I don't have, um, my, my in-laws are Catholic, my, my wife's parents, but beyond that, I don't have a whole lot of Catholic friends or family members or whatnot. So I don't tend to follow Catholicism, but I kind of catch little snippets here and there. And, and Francis seems to be quite a different Pope than we've seen in recent history. Yes, he is. He's probably the most controversial pope in the last 400 years. Number one, he's a Jesuit pope, the first Jesuit to ever. Now, what's a Jesuit? What, what, what makes somebody a Jesuit? Well, the Jesuit order was founded at the Counter-Reformation in the 16th century, and its main goal was to eliminate any opposition to the papacy and to Roman Catholicism. And that's why you had a lot of the um, inquisitions and the... Um, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, where the streets in Paris were ankle deep in the blood of um, born-again Christians, and they were put to death by the Roman Catholic Church. And then those that participated in the massacre, they were given a plenary indulgence by the Pope, which meant by murdering people, all of their sins were forgiven. And so this is the wickedness of this Roman Catholic Church, and the Jesuits, um, for 500 years, they've been instrumental in bringing a lot of people into the Catholic Church through schools. They've got a lot of schools and colleges and universities. They're also very good at hospitals. And so this has been one of the ways that they recruit unsuspecting people into the Roman Catholic religion. But this um, Pope Francis... He is the most controversial pope, and some of the things he says go against historic Roman Catholicism. And so the Catholic Church right now doesn't know what to do with him, because he goes on to say that there is no hell. That goes against Roman Catholic theology. He says atheists will make it to heaven. The Catholic Catechism says that the Catholic Church is necessary for entrance into heaven. And so that goes against historic Roman Catholicism as well. And so he continues in his seven years of being pope 
to come out with these bizarre statements. And um, you'll find that uh, oftentimes afterwards, a lot of the cardinals will have to come along and try and um, resolve the con know, contradictions. Resolve yeah, the contradictions. Try to overcome his uh, contradictions to historic Roman Catholicism. But, you know, his quotes are very clear. You can see his lips move. He's saying these words. And so there's no excuse for what he's doing. But he is a Marxist pope. He's also, of course, um, the political leader of the Vatican City, which is a sovereign nation, which is why you have political leaders coming to the Vatican to meet with the pope. So he's combining this global religion with the global government. And we know ultimately that's what biblical prophecy reveals, mm -hmm. that there will be a one world government, a global religion, and a one world economy. And you see this Pope, Pope Francis, really involved. He's got his hands in all different aspects of it. Wow. <clears throat> and and I, I had uh, the ecumenism as a, as a bullet point that I wanted to hit on, but um, I almost... I don't know if I want to save this question and talk about that first, or how do the Jesuits reconcile this this history? I mean, they're you just described that they 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 were formed to counter the Reformation in opposition to the papacy. How do they reconcile that with this ecumenical movement? Doesn't it seem? I mean, that seems contradictory to me. Well, it's another good question. In Vatican Council Two, which nineteen sixty three to sixty five, they changed what they call us. Prior to Vatican II, we were called heretics, and they tried to eliminate all the heretics. But now, because of the ecumenical movement, there is a decree of ecumenism given at Vatican II. So they recognize that they can't woo us back by calling us names. So now we're called separated brethren. Mm -hmm. And it, the reason we're separated brethren is that until we come back to Holy Mother of the Church, we cannot enjoy the fullness of salvation. And Andy, do you know what you and I are lacking, according to the Catholic Church, for the fullness of salvation? We don't have the Eucharist. Uh, so that's the calling card. Uh -huh. The Eucharist is supposedly, according to Catholic theology, the physical body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the priest is said to have the power to call Jesus Christ down from heaven to continue on an altar what he finished on the cross. And that's what the sacrifice of the Mass is all about. It's a propitiatory sacrifice, which means God's wrath is turned away for the sins committed in the previous week by Roman Catholics who attend the Mass. It's also a means to get people out of a place called purgatory. The priest will put the names of the loved ones on the altar after someone has paid for the indulgence, and then he will offer the sacrifice of the Mass to remove them from purgatory, but no one knows how many masses must be said before a soul is removed from this fictitious place. Now that's something that goes all the way back to Luther. I mean, he was, that was one of his primary uh, problems with, with Catholicism was uh, Tetzel coming through, looking for them, sure. the funds to build St. Peter's cathedral. Yeah, it's the buying and selling of God's grace mm -hmm. with filthy lucre. And um, you're right, that's what funded St. Peter's. It's what's made the Catholic Church the richest institution on the face of the earth, selling God's forgiveness through indulgences. And again, that's an infallible dogma. It can never change. 
Catholics will try and tell you that we don't do that anymore, but all you have to do is pick up a bulletin when you go in for the daily mass and you'll see all the names of the people listed there where the mass is being said to get them out of purgatory indulgences being applied yeah it's it's so wicked it really is and, I mean, you know the catholic church it's not just the catholic church but every religion tries to control its people yeah the catholic church holds catholics in bondage in this life and even in the next because when they die, they're still dependent upon the priest to get them out of purgatory. And that's why the Lord Jesus said, if you're truly a disciple of mine, you will abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and that truth will set you free from religious bondage. Mm -hmm. So we need to encourage Catholics to exchange their religion for a relationship with Christ. Mm -hmm. um, now, you you talked about Vatican II and the ecumenism with uh, with the Protestantism, but their ecumenism is going so much broader. And you've already mentioned uh, atheists, for instance. Uh, what's driving this this like almost radical ecumenism now? Well, it goes with their eschatology. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ will not return to the earth until the whole world is Roman Catholic. And so that's why you see not only the Pope trying to build bridges into all the Protestant denominations and the cults, but also into the non-Christian religions. The most visible one is the bridge that's been built to the Muslims. <clears throat> the Catechism of the Catholic Church dares to say that the Muslims share salvation and God because they worship the one true God. And so... Why would the Catholic Church single out Muslims? Why not Jews? Why not Hindus or Buddhists? It's because the Muslim religion represents a huge population. When these two religions come together, and we know they will in the end, that will represent 40% of the world's population because the Catholic Church has 1.3 billion and the Muslims anywhere from 1.6 to 1.7. <clears throat> so once these two come together, and I believe it'll be through apparitions of Mary. She's uh, highly revered among Muslims, and they look to her as coming for all of her children. Muslims now are going to apparition sites to get messages from Mary. But when these two religions come together, I believe the other religions will follow suit. Hmm. Now, as you described their eschatology, it almost sounds post-millennial. Is that uh, they follow a... Does Catholicism follow kind of a form of post-millennialism? No, they're Amel. They're Amel? Yeah, they don't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. When Christ returns, that's when the new heaven and the new earth will start. But my understanding of the difference between, and, and I don't adhere to either view, but Amel and post-mill is that they're similar in, in not seeing a literal millennium, but post-mill sees a progressive uh, move towards greater and greater faith. They think that, you know, uh, a Protestant post-millennialist thinks that the world will be proselytized to the point they'll, they'll, they'll come to the gospel. And, and once the whole world hears the gospel and, and receives the gospel, then Christ will return. And you're, what you're describing kind of sounds like a Catholic take on that. Well, the word amil means there is no millennium. That's what ah means. And so what they do is they take Revelation 20, mm -hmm. which gives a literal thousand-year reign six different times in that one chapter, 
they yeah. spiritualize and say it just means a long time. Sure. So the Catholic Church would say that we are in that particular time right now, and we need to make everybody Catholic before we can get Jesus to return. But mm. when, when I've heard, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Jeff Durbin in particular out of Phoenix is a post-millennial. And as he's talked about his eschatology, he, he'll say, you know, he thinks that we've got tens of thousands of years left before Christ returns. The things might get worse for a little while, but generally speaking, they're going to get better and more and more people are going to get saved. And, and that, that this, this world is, is under Christ's reign and, and that's going to manifest itself. And that's, well, I guess that's the genesis of the question. Yeah. By the authority of scripture, I'd have to say that he is wrong. Mm -hmm. Because when you read the scriptures, you see the end times is characterized by a great apostasy, a falling right. away from. Oh, the I faith. agree with you. I, that, sure. <laughs> I share premillennialism with you. Right. But, yes. Uh, yep. Okay. I'm just curious because it, it sounds similar to you know, and I might not fully understand postmillennial eschatology, but but I try to seek uh, to understand even that which I don't agree with. You know. My, you know, I mentioned that my wife uh, grew up Catholic, that her parents are Catholic. And, and so I was asking her if she had questions and her, she had the big one. You probably hear from a lot of uh, former Catholics and, and just wondering what would be, in your experience, the most effective way to witness to Catholics. Now, you mentioned your Bible study and, and having people quickly come to faith in Christ. Yeah, I'm glad you asked the question because the two most important biblical principles that we need to share when we witness to Roman Catholics. Number one, the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of faith, mm -hmm. because the Catholic Church teaches that there's three equal authorities. You have the Bible, and you have sacred tradition, and then you have the magisterium of the church made up of the bishops. Well, they say all three of these are equal, but in actual practice, it's the bishops sitting above the yeah. other two authorities and they do a masterful job of twisting and distorting the scriptures such that it conforms and harmonizes with their ungodly tradition. And so that's why establishing the Bible as the supreme authority is so important. You shouldn't go any further until Catholics recognize God is the supreme being. There's no higher authority than him. He's revealed himself through his inspired, infallible, inerrant word, and nothing is higher than that. And so there's a couple of passages we could turn to. Acts 17, 11, the apostle Paul is preaching in the synagogues of Berea. And as he's preaching, he notices his listeners are searching the scriptures to test the veracity of a man who wrote over half the New Testament. And so that proves that every man should be tested by scripture. That should be their authority over any man's teaching. Paul didn't get upset. He didn't say, don't you know I'm an apostle? Don't you know I've written the scriptures? No, he said this is a good practice. So mm -hmm. he commended them for that. And then how do you deal with tradition? Well, you look to Mark chapter 7, where the apostate Jews had elevated their tradition to the point where Jesus said it was nullifying the very word of God. And so clearly Jesus was rebuking them for using their tradition rather than the word of God as their authority. Mm -hmm. So those are the two places you can establish scripture as the supreme authority over men and over tradition. And the second principle that needs to be shared with Catholics, we need to show that Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. 
that he did everything necessary to save sinners completely and forever. And when he accomplished everything, then he said, it is finished. The work of redemption is done. The Catholic Church says, no, the work of redemption continues on its altars every day. And so establishing the sufficiency of Christ to show that he lived a sinless life, obeyed the law perfectly, and knowing that God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness for entrance into heaven, the only way we can get into heaven is by receiving the gift of Christ's righteousness. We see that as a gift in Romans 5.17. So he obeyed the law perfectly to give us his righteousness. He shed his blood because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. He redeemed us from the curse of the law and the, press, the precious price for that was his blood. He also justified us. Um, we're no longer condemned sinners by the imputation of his righteousness. We now have a right standing before God, and that standing is forever. We see that in Hebrews 10, 14. By one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. And so he assured our salvation. The Catholic Church only teaches conditional salvation because salvation depends on what they do rather than what Christ has done. Mm -hmm. So the only way your salvation could be assured if you're placing all of your trust, all of your hope, and all of your faith on the finished work of Christ. Because then, knowing that he did it all, we have the assurance that his righteousness has been imputed to us, that our sins have been completely forgiven, so we have that assurance and then, you know, the question comes up, well, sin is what caused separation from God. So once we're born again, why doesn't sin separate us from God anymore? It's a good question. Mm -hmm. Catholics will often ask that. It's because all of our sins were placed on Christ. And we see that in Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. We see it again in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 that God is reconciling the world to himself through Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Mm -hmm. So that's why we never are separated from God again after we're born again. All of our sins were imputed to Christ. He suffered once for all sin for all time, and we have that assurance that our sins have been forgiven. Wow. My, tell me if I'm misunderstanding, but my understanding of... Uh, of a Catholic theology is that they'll also invert justification and sanctification. Whereas the scriptures say that we're instantly justified and we spend a lifetime being sanctified. They teach that you're instantly sanctified at, at baptism. And then you spend your life working towards justification. Is that well, accurate? You're, you're close. Um, baptism is the sacrament of justification and the sacrament of regeneration. So most Catholics are baptized when they're seven days old. No capacity to put their faith in anything. Mm -hmm. They're said to be justified through the sprinkling of the water. And also they're born again, regeneration. Now, later on, when the Catholic grows up and commits a mortal sin, they're now de-justified, and they have to be re-justified by receiving the sacraments and doing good works to obtain the merit necessary to gain eternal life. And so this is a cycle Catholics go through all their life. Justified at baptism, de-justified at mortal sin, re-justified 
by the sacraments and, and de-justified. You never know where you stand before a holy and righteous God. And so that's Roman Catholicism. They do intermix the two because it's a constant process of becoming right before God, not knowing God's righteousness requires perfect righteousness. And I played baseball. I When I committed my first error in, out, in the outfield, there's nothing I could do to get that perfect 1,000 fielding percentage again. Mm-hmm. All I could hope for is 0.999 something. Mm-hmm. And it's the same way once you've sinned, you can never get the perfect righteousness that God's righteousness requires. And so we have to rely on the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us by faith alone. That's what justification is. Mm-hmm. Well, the last bullet point I think we could spend a half hour on, and I'm more than happy to do it, and that was the dire need for the gospel. Yes. And you, you've woven that through the discussion already. And um, well, let's let's just maybe talk to each other with as if there are a Catholic in the room and, and, and talk about the gospel. Sure. There's four key elements in the gospel. It always starts with God's holiness. Righteousness and justice is the very foundation of his throne. God cannot overlook sin. He must punish every sin that's ever been committed by every man and woman that's ever lived. That's a characteristic of his holiness and his perfect justice. And so when you look at God's holiness, then you see that man is a sinner. Man stands guilty before a holy and righteous God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we read the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will surely die. And so God didn't leave us in that hopeless and helpless condition. Sinners under his condemnation, he sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, born of a virgin, became a man, lived a sinless life, and then died on Calvary's cross as a substitute for those who would put their trust in him. You see, divine justice was satisfied when Jesus died on Calvary's cross for all those who would trust in him. God punished Jesus as a substitute for sinners, satisfying divine justice. Now, those who reject Christ, those who don't know about Jesus, divine justice must be satisfied, and that takes place at the great white throne judgment. That's where everyone stands before the Lord Jesus Christ, who has never trusted him, and divine justice will be paid when Jesus says, depart from me, and they're cast into the eternal lake of fire. And so that's the gospel. And the only response that a man can make in order to be saved is to repent and believe the gospel. And the word repent, the Greek word is metanoia. It simply means you must change your mind about the former way you believed and now believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Catholic listening to this, you have to repent of your Catholic teaching that says you are saved by water baptism and the sacraments and the participation in the Mass and doing your good works and obeying the law, you must repent of all those things that you thought could save you and put all of your trust in the only one who can, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to Scripture alone all for the glory of God alone. And so if there's anyone listening, I urge you, repent, change your mind, 
and put all of your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is your only hope. If you think that Jesus only did 99% and you must do 1%, you're lost because it's an insult to Christ. He did it all. And if you think you can add some of your filthy rags of righteousness to what he did, that's an insult and it nullifies saving grace. So you must come to the cross with empty hands of faith, bringing nothing but your sins. You got to leave everything else behind. Mm-hmm. It's also so freeing when you really grasp that, when you understand the gospel and you realize that Christ did it all, that I don't have to go uh, perform rituals. I don't have to pay anybody anything. I don't have to do any good works that he paid it all. And then uh, I, I know the book of James tends to be popular amongst Catholics, that faith without works is dead. And, and that, as we're saved, as we repent and come, as you've just laid out for us, that we then turn to those good works, not because we want to earn something, but out of gratitude for what he's already done for us. Yeah, that's why the three verses in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 are so important for Catholics to consider. We read that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of our works. It's a gift of God so that no man may boast. But then the very next verse says, now that you're a new creation in Christ, do the works that God has prepared for you to walk in. But you cannot do those works until you're first saved, until you're born again. Then you're a new creature in Christ. Then you do the works that God has prepared. But as you say, not to merit anything, but out of love and gratitude that God saved you. And yeah, so when you look at James, faith without works is dead, we say amen. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at faith, Faith is the root, and our works is the fruit. So if the root is dead, then there will be no fruit. If the root, which is faith, is alive, then it will produce fruit. And the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and that's some of the demonstrations that we are born again, that we're doing the works, the uh, fruit of the Spirit. So, uh, you know, I wish Catholics would read the context. James is not telling us how to be justified. He's simply contrasting what true saving faith is and what dead faith is. Dead faith will never produce fruit. Living faith that's given by God will always produce fruit. Mm -hmm. But also it's it's, uh, important to point out the difference in what the scriptures describe as works, as you describe fruit. What are those fruits versus what uh, uh, people might look to say Mother Teresa and say, well, look at, you know, she, she cared for all of these poor people in India and, you know, isn't that good works and good, isn't that good fruit? Well, uh, Mother Teresa, by her own admission, was not a Christian. In the end, she even doubted whether or not God existed. Um, You know, she's a classic example of one who even Protestant ministers will elevate as an -hmm. ideal Christian, but She didn't know the gospel. She didn't trust in Christ for her salvation. She was trusting in what she was doing. And so if uh, works got you into heaven, she'd be in the inner circle. But unfortunately, we're saved by grace. And and I say unfortunately for Mother Teresa. And so the fruits that we see are, um, I mean, you see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness. So that's the demonstration that we've been born again. We're a new creature. Mm-hmm. And right alongside that in the same chapter, you see the deeds of the flesh. 
And so as a person grows in sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and he's conforming his life to the life of Christ. And so that's what sanctification is all about. And then ultimately, we end our lives at glorification, either at the rapture or when we die, we'll be instantly into heaven where righteousness reigns and there'll be no more sin. So that's what glorification is. We're saved from the presence of sin. Mm -hmm. Sanctification saves us from the power of sin. And justification saves us from the punishment of sin. Justification and glorification are the two bookends. Sanctification is the life we live in Christ. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten I wanted to bring up, so I want to circle back. Uh, you often will bring up a lot of Romans as you're speaking in churches. Um, and, and the Romans seems to be effective as you're speaking to Catholics and, and comparing biblical truth to Catholic doctrine. So true. You know, in Romans, Paul actually defines the gospel. You know, he starts off by talking about how sinful man is. And then he goes into what the gospel is, what justification is. And he goes into the assurance and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to seal and dwell and empower the Christian. So if you want to know the gospel, you look at Romans. If you want to defend the gospel, then you go to Galatians, because there Paul says, if anyone comes preaching another gospel, which he says is not another gospel because there's only one, then they are to be anathema, which means they are to be turned over to God for destruction. And it's important for Catholics to consider this because Paul was addressing the Judaizers, and all they wanted to do was add one requirement for salvation. You have to be justified. I mean, I'm sorry, you have to be circumcised. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in other words, you have to come under the law. And Paul drove a stake in the ground. He said, let them be accursed, because they wanted to add one thing to the grace of God, which nullifies God's grace. And so Roman Catholics, if you look at their plan of salvation, they are under a divine curse as well, because the Catholic Church teaches, in order to be saved, you must be baptized, you must receive the sacraments, you must participate in the sacrifice of the Mass. You must do good works. You must obey the law. You must participate in indulgences, which remit temporal punishment for sin. And then after all of that, you can expect purgatory to purge away the sins that the blood of Christ was unable to purge away. And that's Roman Catholic salvation. So that's under a divine curse. So Roman Catholics need to know that their priests, their bishops, and their pope are under a divine curse, and they need to come out from under that religion and worship God in spirit and in truth. So there's that direct analogy with Galatians on the Judaizers and, and bringing in circumcision. I also see, uh, at least I see a lot of analogy in Hebrews and seeing the the, the priestly uh, sacrifices and whatnot, and, and the, the analogy to then, say, the Eucharist and a lot of the, the ritualistic aspects of Catholicism. Yeah, I often wish Catholics could read and understand Hebrews 9 and 10 because it totally destroys the concept of the Roman Catholic Mass because it says very clearly that Jesus died once for all sin, for all time. There are no more offerings for sin. The Mass is an offering for sin. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. Now they say it's a representation of Christ 2,000 years ago. 
But that's just double speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, he died once for all sin for all time. He doesn't continue to be offered on a on an altar because there are no more offerings for sin. So if you're a Catholic listening to this, read Hebrews 9 and 10, and you'll see that Jesus Christ, the perfect high priest, offered himself once the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God who demands perfection, and then he cried out, it is finished. That was his victory over sin and over death. And so trust in the one high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't trust in your priesthood. In fact, when Jesus gave up his spirit, there was a miracle that took place in the temple. The Holy of Holies, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from sinful man, it was ripped open from top to bottom, showing that now through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we have direct access to God. We don't need priests anymore. So Jesus put an end to the sacerdotal priesthood when he offered himself. And the Catholic Church continued Judaism by establishing a sacerdotal priesthood, but it's superfluous, it's unnecessary, and it actually blasphemes Christ. So I'd like to get into back into your ministry and and, um, resources that you've got. I think you said it's over 30 years of ministry. Yes. Uh, so uh, we have, I've got listeners not just here in the United States, but throughout the English speaking world and even some uh, English speakers in non English speaking countries. Uh, where can they go for more? Uh, so much of the Western world has ties to Catholicism. We've got family members, we've got neighbors, we've got friends, we've got people we care about. Where can we get some of your resources that can help us to reach those loved ones? Yeah, it's been a labor of love to produce these resources, and I really do love Roman Catholics. I've dedicated my life to reaching them with the gospel. And so we've developed seven different gospel tracts, and they're very effective because each one of them gives a clear presentation of the gospel, and they address different issues. One is called, You Can Never Do What Christ Has Done. I mean, it's a perfect example of what we've been talking about. Give up on trying to get to heaven on your own merit and your own works. Trust in what Christ has done. So this track lists all the things that Christ accomplished that man could never do. We have another track, Roman Catholicism, Scripture versus Tradition. And what I do in this track is I use the Catholic Bible right alongside the Catholic Catechism, and I show the doctrines of Jesus and the doctrines of salvation, and it forces a Catholic to choose. Am I going to trust my Bible? Or am I going to trust my catechism? Because you cannot believe both. They're diametrically opposed all the way through. This has been a very effective tool. We also show two paths to eternity in this track. It shows the biblical path, that we are born destined for hell, but through faith in Christ, we are justified. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so we begin the process of sanctification, never fearing hell again. The Catholic path of salvation, you're born destined for hell, but it's water baptism that puts you on the road to heaven, but a mortal sin puts you back on the road to hell. Now you must merit the graces necessary to get back to heaven. And so when I show these two paths to Catholics, they say, yes, this is what we're taught. This is the Catholic path of salvation. And then you show them the biblical path, and it's very eye-opening. And so it's been very effective. I've written two books. One is Preparing for Eternity, and it's become a classic. I 
wrote it um, about 25 years ago. And um, I wrote it with a dual purpose to equip evangelicals to know how to reach Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. And I also wrote it to give to a Catholic because it's written in the spirit of love and compassion. And it, I use the same methodology. I show what the Bible says right alongside what the catechism says. And as a Catholic reads through this book, he is forced to make a decision. Should I trust Christ in his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? You cannot believe both. And then I read a book called Contending for the Gospel, which is a message I gave in Minneapolis this weekend. The gospel is under attack like never before, the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. So this book defends the gospel. It shows where the attacks are coming from and how Christians can be exhorted by the words of Jude when he said, earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints in the first century. So we need to recognize the great apostasy is going to continue. Discernment in the church is decreasing. We need to discern truth from there and take a stand for the glory and honor of our great God and Savior, for the sanctity of of his church, and also for the purity and exclusivity of the gospel. And Andy, we also have 17 DVDs, and that's how we started our ministry, by Mm -hmm. showing gospel videos. And each DVD contains two messages with all the keynote, PowerPoint slides. So it's a great resource for Bible studies to invite people over to watch the gospel as we did 30-some years ago. We also have a set of gospel cards. I took the 12 most important words of the gospel, put one word on each card, and then on the back of each card, four bullet points defining and explaining what each word means according to Scripture. So it's a great way to train our children with what the gospel is. It's a great way for Christians to go deeper into the gospel. It's also a tool you can use as you witness to Catholics. You can or witness to anybody that's lost, just lay them out and say, knowing that your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, which one of these words would you like to know more about? And it allows them to control the conversation and to pick up the words that they would like to know more about. So a lot of excellent resources. Our website contains some videos as well and some articles I've written over the years. So it's proclaimingthegospel.org. And people can also call us. We have uh, a phone number that we give out. And yes, we get a lot of uh, crank calls too, but most of the calls we get are people looking for resources. Mm -hmm. So that phone number is 817-379-5300. ProclaimingTheGospel.org is our website. So we'd love to help you out, equip you, and encourage you for this huge mission field that really is desperate to hear the gospel. And I will put that in the show notes as well. So if you're listening, you know, say you're in the car or you're away from a notepad and you're wondering and um, what that website was or the phone number. Um, echozoe.com slash 158 is the episode, but of course, you, you know, just go to the website and find the episode that you just listened to. Uh, if it's, if it's fresh, it'll be right on the front page and, um, I'll have it in the show notes as well. So in case you don't have uh, a note card, I know it happens for me a lot. People talk about things on a podcast and you're in the car and then you get home and you forgot that you even wanted to look that up. But, uh, so it'll be there if 
you're so inclined. So Mike, um, such a great conversation. Once again, I'm glad to have you back. Uh, I've 11 years. Let's make it less than that for the next time. Let's do it. I'm, ready. Uh, I, I'm hoping that you'll be back up to see us again too. And that, uh, and I know you've, you've talked about your, your, you're looking forward to things opening back up and getting to travel again and, and meet right. the, the saints and brethren around the country and around the world. So, um, I'm happy for you in that regard. That's, that's kind of a neat thing to be able to do. Well, thank you. And thanks for the privilege of being on your show. And I really hope that God will use this for his glory and to encourage and equip the saints to reach out and also to evangelize any lost people that have been listening. Um, I would encourage them to be good Bereans as I exhorted, Mm -hmm. um, test everything I said with the supreme authority of scripture. And uh, I think you'll find that what I have shared with you conforms to the word of God. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Echo Zoe Radio is an outreach of Echo Zoe Ministries. If you are blessed by the show, please consider offering your support. There are many things you can do to help, including prayer, sharing the show with others, and your financial support. Echo Zoe Ministries is a registered nonprofit organization with 501c3 tax exempt status, and your donations are tax deductible. For more information about how you can support Echo Zoe Ministries, please visit echozoe.com slash support. That wraps up episode 158. Thanks for listening to Echo Zoe Radio. And for show notes, you can visit echozoe.com slash 158. If you have a suggestion for a guest I should try to get on the show or a topic idea you'd like to know more about, please reach out to me. The best way to do that right now is with the contact form at echozoe.com slash contact or by emailing me directly at andy at echozoe.com. Lord willing, we'll be back next month with the July episode of Echo Zoe Radio. 